Turn to Haggai. This is the next in our series of sermons through the Minor Prophets. One sermon over each Minor Prophet for 12 weeks during the summer. We've called it A Summer in the Minors. And uh, we're on down to our last three now. We're coming to Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now what's unique about these three Minor Prophets is that they are what we call the post-exilic prophets. In other words, from the time of our last prophet we studied till the beginning of Haggai here... The exile has occurred. In the last prophet that we studied, we saw the exile happening. And now the exile has occurred, but now it's after the exile, some 70 years later. And Haggai comes on the scene along with Zechariah and Malachi to bring a prophetic word to God's people. Now, a little bit of a historical context here. Judah came under Babylonian control. In 605 B.C., there's the first minor exile of some of the people from Judah. This was Daniel and some of the others who went into exile. And it's not that God didn't have a prophetic word during the exile. Daniel was a prophet during the exile, as was Ezekiel. Ezekiel would be exiled as well in 597 B.C. along with some others. And of course, Jeremiah was prophesying during the fall of Jerusalem. But then in 586 B.C., there were 600,000 Jews exiled from the land. That was when Jerusalem was finally and utterly leveled, as was the temple. The temple was leveled. The walls of Jerusalem were leveled. The whole city was leveled because they continued to rebel against Babylonian control. And in 586, Nebuchadnezzar had had enough, and he wipes out the city of Jerusalem, and he exiles over half a million people. In 538 B.C., About 70 years after the first exiles had left, which is Daniel and his group, about 50 years after the temple had been destroyed, Cyrus the Persian would overtake Babylon and would now control the empire. It was no longer the Babylonian empire. And almost immediately he decides to allow the Jews to return to their land specifically for the purpose of rebuilding their temple. And you can read all about that in the book of Ezra. So in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, you read this decree of Cyrus for the Jews to return. And not only did he send them back to build it, he was going to pay. He was going to finance the whole project. So he does. He sends them back, pays for the temple to be rebuilt. So Ezra, uh, along with about 50,000 exiles, which is kind of sad, only 50,000 returned. The rest had become comfortable living where they were. And 50,000 came back. It was a remnant who came back under the leadership of Ezra, but also under the leadership of a couple of guys you read of in the book of Ezra, but also in this prophecy today. A high priest by the name of Joshua, or it may say Yeshua in Ezra, same name. And then also a governor from the lineage of David named Zerubbabel, who is also called Sheshbazar, which was his Babylonian name. So there's Joshua, the high priest, Zerubbabel, the governor, who had come back to help rebuild the temple. They returned in 538 B.C., like I said, strictly for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. And they began their work, but then the work of building the temple was abandoned around 536 B.C. So around 536 B.C., it's totally abandoned. And in 520 B.C., about 16 years after the work had been abandoned, God sends two prophets— Haggai and Zechariah, they prophesied at the exact same time. They were like twin prophets prophesying in the exact same year at the exact same time. God sends them to stir up his people to action to complete this vital task that they had been given. And so today we are looking at Haggai's prophecy to the people of Jerusalem. 
So please stand if you would. We're only going to read verses 1 through 5. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. That's going to get us started. But we're going to walk through this book like we've walked through all the other minor prophets. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And remember, all the minor prophets are minor because of their size, not because of their importance. Every single minor prophet is a vitally important book of the Scripture. It all points to Jesus. I imagine that Jesus preached through Haggai as he was telling the the guys on the Emmaus Road about himself from the Scriptures. So, Haggai chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 through verse 5. The word of the Lord says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While this house lies in ruins. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that those last words that we just read, consider your ways, would hang over us like a weight, like an anvil. We need to think. We need to examine ourselves so, God, I pray that we would consider our ways this morning as we journey through the book of Haggai. And that not only would we consider our ways, that we would be stirred up to obedience. And beyond that, that our hope and our assurance in who you are will give us such great joy and peace that we will persevere to the end. So, God, I thank you for a book like Haggai. And pray, God, that you would use it this morning. I pray that you'd open up the ears of all of us here this morning and open up my mouth to speak. For without your spirit doing that, we face an impossible task. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I've got my daughter up here to help me. First, I'm going to ask a question. Does anybody know how to catch a monkey in the wild? And before you say a a tranquilizer gun and a big net, no, that's not what I'm looking for. All right, we've got one person back there. You know, know how to... Catch a monkey in the wild. Now, I'm, I'm just assuming you do. I'm not going to ask you to tell me because I'm going to demonstrate it here in a second. Okay, here's, here's what you do. And Emma Kate, come on up here. All right? Emma Kate's my monkey this morning, okay? Now, what they do in the wild, supposedly, and I, I'm assuming it, it works, okay, you take a, a coconut. We don't have a coconut here this morning, so we're going to use a jar. You take a coconut, you hollow it out, and you make a hole in it just big enough For a little monkey to get his hand inside that hole. Okay? And inside that coconut, you put a piece of fruit. Now, I've got a golf ball here. Put a piece of fruit inside that coconut. And you've got to anchor the coconut down somewhere so the monkey won't run away. But what's going to happen is is the monkey's going to come walking along. And he's going to look inside the coconut. And he's going to want to grab that piece of fruit. So reach in there. Able to get his hand in there. Aha! And he grabs a piece of fruit. And he's going to try to pull that piece of fruit out. And lo and behold... He can't get his hand out. He's holding on to that fruit and his hand can't come out. So what happens next is the poachers come up and they see the monkey there. and They've got that coconut tethered down to the ground or something. And they come up and they're going to get the monkey. And the monkey doesn't run away. Why doesn't the monkey run away? Because the monkey wants that fruit. 
The monkey is dead set on hanging on to that piece of fruit. So she won't run away. And she's trying, she begins to desperately try to pull her hand out, but she can't. And there come the poachers and they, they grab her and they take her away and steal her away. Now, not only that, but also if you put other fruit out there, maybe even the exact same fruit and put a pile of it here, that monkey will still hang on to that fruit while a greater amount of fruit, a greater treasure is right there. He's going to hang on to that because he's dumb. Okay? He can't think and he just wants that. He's just acting on instinct. I want that. I want that. I want that. And he finds himself in trouble. Now you got to let go of the golf ball, you monkey. All right, there you go. All right, go sit back with mommy. Okay? Now, I give you that illustration this morning simply as um, a, a way to help the kids and to help all of us really wrap our minds a little bit around what's going on here in this book of Haggai. This book is very much about what's more valuable to you. Are the things of the world more valuable to you or are the things of God more valuable to you? You see, the people in Judah had gotten trapped They had their hands on the wrong things. And God sends Haggai to get them focused on heavenly things instead of earthly things. And in doing so, caused them to let go of this trap that they were stuck in. There are several questions that rise up as as Haggai prophesies here. What were the people supposed to be prioritizing? And flowing out of that question, what was the task that they should have been doing? And, and were they going to persevere in that task, even if they began to do it? Haggai was writing this prophecy, or, or preaching this prophecy, to help the Jews answer those questions and to help us today. My friends, Haggai is one of the most practical of all of the Old Testament minor prophets. It's an extremely practical and relevant book to us. Now, all the scriptures are relevant. But particularly when we read Haggai, we can just see application just jumping off of the page. It's also a very rich book. I mean, there is a lot in this little book here. Matter of fact, this is one of those, and I've read Haggai many times before, but this is the first in-depth study I've done on Haggai. And when you get here, you're thinking, man, I really wish I had about five weeks to preach through Haggai. Because there's so much here. I mean, I already had a whole sermon series in my mind and had to discipline myself to say, no, we got to get through the minor prophets. And so let's try to condense this sermon as much as we can. Now, the structure here of Haggai is that there's four prophecies that Haggai gives to the people of Judah. Okay? Four prophecies. The first one is in chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, which is the whole chapter, chapter 1. The second one is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. The third is in chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. And the fourth one is in chapter 2, verse 20, all the way to the end of that chapter. So there's these four prophecies, and there's, they relate to each other. Prophecy number one and prophecy number three are very similar. They use a lot of the same language. They use this word consider a whole lot. And those, prophecy one and prophecy three seem to be parallel in many ways. Then prophecy number two and prophecy number four are parallel in many ways. They talk about God shaking the heavens and the earth. So there's these interesting parallels here. Now all of these prophecies are given between August 29th of the year 520 B.C., and December 18th of 520 B.C. Haggai is not one of the prophets we have a hard time dating. I mean, it's right there, and it lines up perfectly with Ezekiel, which lines up perfectly with what we know from world history that we've discovered through archaeology and other means. And so Haggai is easy to date between August 
of 520 B.C. to December of 520 B.C. So August uh, 2,533 years ago, this prophecy was given, and it's still relevant today. Now, there's a couple other things about the book of Haggai I want you to just be aware of um, that we're not going to focus in on, but you need to be aware of. You could focus in on this and just preach on this. But first of all, he talks over and over again that the Lord is saying this, thus says the Lord, or thus declares the Lord, 26 times in this little book. 26 times in a book that has 32 verses, he says, thus says the Lord. I think we should get the point. This is God's word. That's what Haggai wants them to understand. He's not just coming and giving them some suggestions. He is saying, listen, God is telling me to tell you this information. So the authority of God's word just reigns over this book. And also, this title for God, Lord of Hosts, Lord of Hosts, it's used all throughout this little book. Okay, it means Lord Almighty or the Lord is sovereign. Lord of hosts. That title for God is used 300 times in the Old Testament. It was used a few times in Psalm 80, 84 that we read earlier. It's used 300 times in the Old Testament. 200 of those times it's used in the minor prophets. So this title for the Lord is very popular in the minor prophets. 90 of those times, 90 of those 200 times, it's used in the post-exilic prophets. These last three. 14 of those are in this book right here. So 14 times the Lord is called the Lord of hosts. So Haggai wants us to understand God's sovereignty over all things. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of hosts. He reigns, he rules, and he is a warrior on behalf of his people. He wants to make sure we understand that. Now, as we pointed out earlier, the exiles were miraculously brought back uh, into the land of Judah, into Jerusalem, with the specific task of rebuilding God's temple. But the building of God's temple had stopped. It had begun, but the work had been abandoned. Now, why had the work been abandoned? Well, there was local opposition from the Samaritans. Um, there was political pressure from the Persians. But worst of all, there was apathy and misplaced priorities among God's people. So, our first point this morning, right off the bat, is I want us to see that Haggai calls God's people, number one, to prioritize the work and the worship of God while heeding his words of discipline. To prioritize the work and the worship of God while heeding his words of discipline. This first word that the Lord has for these people is a word of rebuke because they had not put God's work first. And since the work of God was to rebuild the temple, that means they hadn't put the worship of God first. The temple was the center point of the worship for God's people. Yet here it was sitting, neglected, abandoned. Cyrus had sent the people of God back with money, specifically with the task of rebuilding the temple. But here, 16 years later, that initial work, which you can read of in Ezra chapter 1 through 4, here it is sitting in total disarray. And Haggai, he doesn't blame the Samaritan opposition. He doesn't blame the political intimidation. He says that the problem was with the people themselves. Look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The people had an excuse. The people had an excuse. The time was not right. Perhaps they had good intentions. Perhaps they wanted to get to it. They wanted to do it every day as they're going to their fields to do their work. They walk past this big pile of rubble. And perhaps every time they walk past it, they say, you know what? We really need to get to that. They had good intentions, perhaps. 
But good intentions were nothing more than that. They had become indifferent toward the work of God and the proper worship of God. Friends, how often do we have good intentions to do what we know God is telling us to do, but the timing just never seems to be right? I I hope to start a Bible reading plan next year. When New Year comes, I'll start a Bible reading plan. I hope to, to, to lead my family in, in Bible study and devotions. And, but next week, once we get our schedule figured out. Guys, I'm preaching it myself as much as anyone. I plan to start doing this. I plan to do this until when the time's right, when I can actually figure it all out. I plan to adopt. I plan to disciple someone. I plan to share the gospel. I plan to give more money to God. Someday, sometime, just not now, the time has not yet come. This is what was happening in Jerusalem. Funny thing, though, they had time for other stuff. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Somehow they had found the time to build their houses. And not only houses, paneled houses at that. These were good houses. They had taken the time to actually cut the wood to make the paneling and everything else. These were nice houses. Funny thing about us, too. I'm sure we find the time to do a lot of other things. How often do we say there's no time for the things of God, yet somehow we miraculously find the time to entertain ourselves, to provide for ourselves, to do the things that we want to do for ourselves. You see, for the Jews, just like for us, the problem isn't time. The problem is the heart. Now, I'm not saying that some of you, like my family, are not pressed, really pressed, for time. But we all know that we'll make time for what we really want to do. You know it, and I know it. Our problem and the Jews' problem is that we love the things of the world more than the things of God. We love temporal, transient things more than eternal things. We love things that are here today and gone tomorrow more than the things that will never perish. We're like people who love snowmen in the desert. Imagine you're out in the desert, Phoenix or something, and some freak snowstorm comes in, and it piles down enough snow for you to build a snowman, and you love this snowman. This snowman is awesome. It's amazing, and you love it so much. You'll give your life for this snowman, only that that 110-degree temperature heat is coming right back, and it's going to melt away. That's what the things of the world are like. They're like snowmen in the desert. They're going to melt away. And we love them. So God calls on them and he calls on us to examine ourselves. Verse 5. Now therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. The phrase simply means, the word consider here simply means to think. Think about the way you're living. Examine yourself. Analyze your passions. Those who belong to God are called to be thinkers with renewed minds. We are not to be like irrational animals who simply respond to stimuli. Ooh, ooh, I want to spend my time and my money on that or getting that. Friends, we act like Pavlov's dogs. God's people's 
God's people should be thinkers, should be self-examiners. We should be like David in Psalm 139 who says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That should be our prayer every day. That the Lord would examine us, expose anything in our heart that we're going after that's transient, that's temporal, that's going to melt away like a snowman in the desert. The Christian life is a life of examination. That's what Paul tells us to do in 2 Corinthians 13.5, to examine ourselves, test ourselves. Peter tells us to do the same thing in 2 Peter 1.10. Now you might say, well, yeah, those passages are about exam- examining whether or not you're in the faith. And I agree, that's what those passages are about. But I can think of no better examination of the genuineness of your faith than to peer into your wants and desires and see if God is at the top of them. The returned exiles were to examine whether or not they were serious about worshiping God. They were to examine how they were living. Verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Their economic situation was, well, it was uncomfortable for them. It wasn't that they were poor. Remember, they lived in paneled houses. But at the same time, it didn't seem like their money was going as far as it should either. They were working hard. They were sowing much. But it seemed like they were getting little for their return. I remember when, uh, uh, well, Noah has done gardens. We did gardens for several years in a row. I haven't done it for a few years now, but Noah would make gardens. And some years it seems like you'd go out there and you'd plant the stuff. you put all the stuff on there that's supposed to do. And boom, the vegetables are just coming. And I remember one year we went out there and did all the same things we had done the previous year and just nothing. Just nothing coming up. And that's how they felt. They're, they're working hard, but nothing's being produced. They had food and drink. But it seemed they could always use a bit more. It wasn't enough. It says it didn't fill. That means it didn't satisfy. They seemed to never quite have enough clothes. And their wallets seemed to have holes in them. Perhaps you can identify. Anybody else in here have wallets with holes in them? Yes, I see hands going up all over the place. Perhaps you can identify. In a nutshell, though, they were dissatisfied. They were frustrated. And they were discontent. They didn't have any joy. They didn't have any peace. You see, when God is central in our affections and in our worship, joy and peace and contentment flow out of us regardless of our circumstances. Remember the end of Habakkuk? Whether there's, whether there's uh, animals in the stall, whether there's harvest, it doesn't matter. When you have a proper view of God and you're aiming toward God and you desire to worship Him above everything else. Remember what Paul said, Philippians 4, I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. But I want us to back up a few verses in that passage and look at what Paul says before these verses. He says this earlier, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And this is verse 8. 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think. Paul practiced what Haggai was preaching to the people of Jerusalem. Namely, he was thinking, he was considering. He was considering his ways and he was choosing to fix his mind on eternal things instead of temporal things. If the Jews of Haggai's day had had thought about and sought after the eternal things instead of the temporal ones, they wouldn't have been so discontent. And they would have had that joy and that peace and that contentment flowing out of them like Paul had. They weren't doing the kingdom work they had been given to do. Isn't that what Jesus taught us in the passage we read earlier in Matthew chapter 6? Don't be anxious about anything, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now I want to make sure you understand, we're not talking about Seeking God and God will provide whatever you want. This isn't prosperity gospel. Here's the difference between the prosperity gospel and what Haggai teaches. Because I do believe if you honor God and seek God and put him first, he will bless you. He will give you what you need. He will provide for your family. But even if he chooses to take you through a season of drought, you're okay. You're content. Just like Paul. But, But here's the deal. Here's what prosperity teachers teach. If you have enough faith... You'll get what you want. Just believe and you're going to get whatever you want. Here's what this says. Want God above everything else and God will give you what you need. That's the difference. Prosperity teachers will take this passage and others in this book and twist it to make you want the things of the world. To make you want snowmen in the desert. And miss out on the things of heaven. Anxiety, friends, is often the symptom of bad thinking, which is why we need to examine ourselves. And upon examination, we'll see clearly what we are called to do. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. God's word doesn't just open our eyes to the error of our ways. It calls us to live differently in the light of that word. That's repentance in a nutshell. It's walking away from sin and now acting in an opposite manner. And the reason we are called to action is that God says here that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. God's glory is the ultimate purpose of our obedience. Remember, the temple was huge, friends. It was the place where God dwelt with his people. It was central to proper worship of God in the old covenant. And it was the means of displaying God's glory to the nations. You say Haggai is such a relevant book. Well, what does a temple building in the Middle East have to do with me? Well, friends, the temple is still central in our worship. Only it's not a building. It's a person. Jesus. In Matthew 12, 6, Jesus told the Pharisees that something much greater than the temple was here, meaning himself, that he himself was greater than the physical temple that they loved. In John 2, verses 18 to 22, Jesus declares that he himself, his body, is the temple. He is now the place where God meets man and displays his glory. It says in John chapter 1, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the new temple. And quite mysteriously, 
we, when we are united to him by faith and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we too are called temples of God. Individually, as we read in 1 Corinthians 6, and corporately, as we read in 1 Corinthians 3 and in 1 Peter 2. Matter of fact, I think there's a direct correlation here you can make between this passage where Haggai is calling on the people to do temple work and 1 Corinthians 3 when Paul is calling on the people to get out of their lethargy and their sin and get busy working on God's temple. And he says you need to be building with gold, silver, and precious stones and not with wood, hay, and straw because your work is going to be exposed on the final day. Get to work. Get to work on God's business. Get to work on temple business is what Paul calls on the people to do. Paul is calling on God's people to stop their sinning, return to the work of God, which was to build up the temple of God in order to worship God for the glory of God. Only he does it in a New Testament context. But back to Haggai here. Haggai summarizes the situation again here at the end of chapter 1. But this time he goes farther to actually say that God had brought economic distress upon his people because of their complacency. Verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. God was bringing divine discipline upon his people to get their attention, to get them focused on the real things. Now, I'm speaking here for his children. Now, you say, well, people of the world, they go about and live however they want and accumulating stuff. Right. But God's children, God can and will use hardships, difficulties, to get our attention or to teach us something because he will discipline us. He may be trying to get our eyes off of those temporal things. If we're loving snowmen in the desert, don't be surprised that God brings a scorching sun. God can and will use circumstances to get our attention or to simply teach us something or to show us something. Now that's not to say that every hardship that comes into your life is discipline. Remember Job? That's what his friends thought. Not every hardship that comes into your life is discipline, but friends, God can teach you and wants to teach you through every hardship. Job sure was closer to God at the end of that than he was before he went into it. So regardless of whatever circumstance you're in, God may be using it to discipline you, to chasten you. He may just be using it to teach you to trust in him more. Regardless, friends, you are to think about these things. That's why we're supposed to be examining. So when hardship does come into our life, we need to be asking ourselves, okay, God, is there something that you're trying to get my attention about here? Help me to look into my life. Help me to practice what David said. Examine me, O Lord. Examine my heart. It's exactly what Paul told the Corinthians, isn't it? Let a person examine himself then... And so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. My goodness. There were people in the church in Corinth weak and ill and some had died because they weren't taking the Lord's Supper in the proper manner. They weren't examining themselves. That doesn't mean every person that died in Corinth, oh well, I guess he just, he must not have taken the Lord's Supper right on Sunday. But it does mean that God can and will use these difficulties. 
to discipline his people. The Jews heard Haggai's words and responded with action. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. So they obeyed. They obeyed what? They obeyed the voice of the Lord, meaning they obeyed the word of God. They were not just hearers of the word. They were going to be doers of the word. Someone once said that when God has spoken, apathy is evidence of practical atheism. When God has spoken and you don't act and you remain in apathy, that's evidence of practical atheism in your life. Do we act when we hear God's clear word? God's prophetic word was clear to them. They not only obeyed, we read on, it says, and the people feared the Lord. They feared the Lord. That's the mark of true obedience from the heart. It's one thing to obey. It's another thing to obey with fear, meaning reverence for who God is. If we believe this is God's word spoken from God's mouth, and God is who he says he is in this word, we will obey with fear. We will hear God's word as a thunderous word to us, and it will shake us into obedience. So we see obedience, we see reverence, and we see God give the assurance of his presence. Verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. What a comfort that is. All throughout scripture we see that when God gives his people a task, he then reminds them that he's with them. What greater task does the new covenant people of God have outside of the Great Commission? Right? You know it. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do you believe that? That should cause you to fear. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go! Don't just sit here. Go! Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God not only promises to be with us, he does more than that. He does something theologians call effectual working. Meaning he does a work in our spirit to grant obedience in our hearts. Verse 14, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. Why did they do what they did? Because God did a work in them to stir up their spirit. He created a willing spirit in their spirit. And when when he did that, we read that they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month of the second year of Darius the king. That work of God in their hearts, that promise of God to be with them, leads us directly into the next section. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 to start off with, but we'll go through this whole section. So I want to read chapter 2 verse 1, it says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. This is Haggai's second word to the Jewish people, and it comes to them three months after they had begun the work. And in this section, we see that Haggai is calling on God's people to do the second point here, to persevere in the work 
and the worship of God while hoping in his words of promise. So we're called to prioritize the work and the worship of God while heeding his words of discipline, but also we're called to persevere in that work, hoping in his words of promise. It seems that perhaps here the people three months in had already gotten discouraged, and so God sends Haggai to call them to perseverance. Now why were they discouraged? Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you now see it? Is it as nothing in your eyes? It seemed that some people were discouraged by how small and insignificant this new temple seemed when they compared it to the old one, Solomon's temple. Certainly there were some people there who, who remembered Solomon's temple. Matter of fact, many scholars believe Haggai was an older fellow, maybe, maybe 80 or 90 years old when he's bringing this prophecy. So he himself remembers what the old temple looked like. And so this task, this temple seemed as nothing in their eyes. Solomon's temple was a glorious structure, one of the wonders of the ancient world. And now as this work begins, the structure begins to take shape and the people are discouraged. Their task seems small compared to what God has done in the past. And this is how the people had originally reacted in Ezra. You can go back and read in Ezra. That's how they reacted when they first started building the temple. It says some of the people rejoiced while the older people wept. Friends, the enemy will try to make us think that our task is insignificant. We love to compare ourselves with others, don't we? We look at how God is using that person or that church, and then we look back at what we're called to do and we get discouraged. Or we look back in church history at great movements like the Reformation or the Great Awakenings and, or great heroes of Christendom, and we romanticize the past and we wish we could have just lived when they lived. If I could have just been right there, I'd have been right there with Martin Luther, right there with him. I would have been there, wouldn't I? Yeah, right. We can't think that way, friends. We must recognize that God is the Lord of hosts and that he has chosen the time and the seasons and the location we are and he has placed us here for a reason and we are not to be discouraged. Instead, we are to hear Haggai's words, verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. God's people are to be strong. Do you hear these words? They are echoes of God's command to Joshua as he went into the promised land. Be strong and courageous. God's people have a task before them. And we are to take refuge in God. And he is to be our strength. And he is to be the supplier of our courage. So we are to be strong. And then we are to, what Haggai goes on to say, work. In verse 4, work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Work. We are to be strong and work. Why? Because his spirit is at work among us. Do you hear that? We are to be strong and work because his spirit is at work among us. Just as he was amongst the people then. Do you hear the apostle Paul again? I do. I love it when I'm reading the Old Testament and I hear the New Testament shouting at me. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
I love that word on perseverance right there. We are to work. And the only reason we can work is because he is at work in us. We work because he works in us. Therefore, true Christians will work because true Christians have the very presence of God in them working. And true Christians will persevere for God will not leave his own work undone. Perseverance, friends, is all about the sovereignty of God. You understand why perseverance is a hard thing for many people to swallow today? It's because in churches and Baptist churches and other places, we have diminished the sovereignty of God. And we have elevated the responsibility of man. So when you talk to some people like this, they think, well, you're adding works to the gospel. You're saying that you got to do all this stuff in order to persevere to the end. I'm saying, no, it has nothing to do with man. It has everything to do with the Lord of hosts who is sovereign over the universe. And he is at work in his believers and he is doing a work in them and he will bring it through to completion. It is not about man adding works to the gospel. It's about God finishing what he said he would do. That's what it's about. And when we go this route, we diminish God. Don't bring God down to our stinking level. Wait a second. If it's God at work, then, well, then I guess I don't have to do anything. No. Nope. If you're not working, it just shows me there ain't something at work in you. Why will God not leave his work undone? So I can just say that. God won't leave his work undone. And you say, well, that's your opinion, Steve. Why will God not leave his work undone? Because according to Haggai, he is a covenant-keeping God. Haggai reminds him that God is a covenant-keeping God who would not abandon his people. So how much more for us, for we live in the new covenant, the covenant of the blood of Christ, and it is on the basis of that unbreakable covenant that we work because he works in us. Therefore, we have nothing to fear. Haggai goes on to say, fear not. Fear not is the command that God gives his people through Haggai. Fear is usually, not always, but usually a reflection of our failure to believe the promises of God. It's a failure to believe that our covenant-keeping God is going to do what he said he's going to do. And that he is faithful to the covenant. You think we treat God like a person. We know that we may come into covenant with a person and they may fail us. And so then we turn around and act like that's how God is. God's not like that. He doesn't fail his covenant. He keeps his promises. So we don't have to fear. Our covenant-keeping God has mind-blowing things in store for his people. Verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now again, there's a multifaceted nature to this prophecy here. Just as many of the Old Testament prophecies are. There are immediate historical implications and there are future eschatological implications. Now we'll come back to this shaking that that God is going to be doing here in a minute. But for now, let us see that, that God is promising to bring the treasures of all the nations in to fill his house. Certainly this points partially to an eschatological truth. But also, my friends, it points to something that God was actually accomplishing in history at that very moment. Let me, let me explain this to you. You can't get this from just reading Haggai. you got to read Haggai alongside Ezra. This is the reason we read the whole Bible. Now, at this very moment, when the people were beginning to get discouraged, they had just begun the work. They were only three months into it. 
We know from reading Ezra that the people who opposed this work sent a letter to King Darius saying, you got to stop these guys. They're, they're starting to build this building. They're not supposed to be doing this. You need to stop them. So they're here building for three months. This letter has gone back. It's t- certainly taken longer than three months for it to get to Darius. Darius reads it. So what does Darius do? He's a wise king. He says, well, bring out the records. Let me see what the past, what was written about these people. And so he finds Cyrus's decree to build the temple. So Darius says, okay, I'm going to reissue this decree. He reissues the decree. And not only that, he says, I'm also going to use the royal treasury to build it. So here are these people. They're building this building. They're 30 years into it. All that initial wealth is probably gone by now, 16 years ago. And they're discouraged. How is God going to do this? And God says, hey, guess what? I'm bringing the wealth of the nations in. Just wait. Just wait. My friends, I can't help but think about Harbin's and those early days of discouragement. We had no idea what God was up to. Toby's over there smiling. We had no idea there were days of great discouragement. Friends, most of y'all don't even know the little stories. It was a, it was a, it was a work of God to get us in the school. It was a work of God for, for my family to have that truck out there we have. All these little things that God worked together and God was doing all this. We had no idea this was coming. No idea. We had no idea how God was working, but friends, by God's grace, because he was at work within us, we kept working. Let us be strong and work, friends, for he indeed is at work within us. I have no idea what the future holds for Harbin's. But we see Haggai here talking about the temple in a way that pointed to a greater fulfillment as well. Verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now the glory of this temple, which would eventually become Herod's temple. Herod would take it and, and fix it up even more. And despite all the great improvements and the, and the tremendous spectacular work Herod did on this temple, it still never exceeded Solomon's. But guess what? The glory of Jesus sure does. This temple never exceeded the glory of the previous temple. But the glory of our temple, the new temple, Jesus surely does. And it's in him and only through him that we have this peace here that that Haggai is talking about. I believe verse 9 is pointing directly to Jesus. Jesus is the new temple and he's also the final high priest. This Yeshua, which is the same name by the way, this could be Jesus the high priest as you're reading here in Haggai. This Yeshua would pass away and need to be replaced, but not the Yeshua of Nazareth. He would be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Haggai's prophecy will point even more to Jesus here in a bit. But I believe verse 9 is pointing us directly at Jesus. For now, though, let us see that God is calling his people here in this text to persevere in the work and the worship of God while hoping in his word of promise. Trust me, I'm promising you things. You need to put your hope in that promise. Now, friends, we're not going to have time I'm barely going to have time to finish the message. We're not going to have time really to cover the third of Haggai's prophecies, which is chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. I had it in here, and I just had to chop it out because there just wasn't enough time. So I'll draw our sermon to a close by going to the end of chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. But just real quick, that section there, verses 10 through 19, it's very similar to the first section. God, again, tells them to think, think. And he wants them to think about, he reminds them that they had fallen short. He reminds them of the discipline that he had brought in their life. 
And then he reminds them that he's still going to bless them. In other words, it's a reinforcement that this that God is doing in their life is not about them. Because they're unpure, they're unclean. It's about God's grace and God's mercy poured out upon them. So it's a reminder of God's faithfulness, his covenant-keeping faithfulness to them. And a continued promise to bless them. But now let's close with this last section. Chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. And you will see how this one has very similar language to what we just read. Verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Friends, if the first mention of God shaking the heavens and the earth and earlier in this chapter, gives us hints of the Messiah. This one shouts it out. Who is Zerubbabel? He's the governor, but he's from the line of David. And God uses messianic language here about Zerubbabel. He calls him his servant. That's a messianic title. Then he calls him his signet ring. You see, back in, back in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24, the Bible says that God casts off the line of David as his signet ring. The signet ring was the king's symbol of authority and power. And the line of David was supposed to be that. Of course, these kings that were predecessors of our Lord Jesus Christ, they had failed. They were sinners. And, and, and when they went into exile, it says the Lord cast off the signet ring. But now right here it says he's putting it back on. He's putting it back on. And he's calling Zerubbabel that signet ring. And then he says he's chosen him. Again, he's using messianic language. But Zerubbabel wasn't the Messiah. He never ended up being king of Judah. We don't know of any examples of his authority and power being demonstrated. He never delivered his people. And we never hear of him again. Well, almost. We do hear of him twice. Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. Luke chapter 3, verse 27. His name is in a list of a bunch of other names in the lineage of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the great, 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 great whatever of Jesus. He's both in Mary's genealogy and in Luke's genealogy. There he is. There's Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was simply pointing to the one to come. So in one way, yes, he was there because in Zerubbabel's seed would come the Messiah. Not Zerubbabel himself, but Zerubbabel's great, 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 great grandchild, Jesus of Nazareth. And it was Jesus who was that chosen one, the suffering servant. And all authority of God was with him, for he was God and is God. And with the arrival of Jesus, God did indeed shake the heavens and the earth, and it is Jesus who will return and indeed overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, and only for those who have put their faith in him for the forgiveness of sins, sins only for those people who are part of his kingdom only those will not be shaken on that final day. Everyone else will be shaken except for those who are in Christ. The only place that Haggai is quoted in all of the New Testament is in Hebrews 12, the passage we read earlier in the service. Let me read it again. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, 
For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. There's the quote. The phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now we've come full circle back to worship. Back to worship. Friends, it's all related You see, perseverance and worship go hand in hand. When we put God first in his rightful place, we prioritize him, and we see him as as extremely valuable, supremely valuable over anything else in the world. And we let go of the world, let go of transient things, and embrace eternal things. It gives us the strength to persevere. It gives us the fuel to persevere because our eyes are on the eternal. You want to stop worrying about the transient things of this world, the the snowmen in the desert? Fix your eyes upon what's to come. An unshakable kingdom. That's how you persevere. You don't persevere by making a list of rules and say, okay, I guess I'm a Christian, I better do this. You persevere by fixing your eyes on the treasure of an unshakable kingdom. You're going to be with God forever. And Revelation tells us there will be no longer a need for a temple. There won't be a temple anymore because they'll be with him in his very presence forever and ever in an unshakable kingdom. Fix your eyes on that and snowmen begin to look like a puddle of water. Fix our eyes on heavenly things. Prioritize and you'll have the strength to persevere. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning as we close this time with a song and wanting to dedicate our lives to you, wanting to be people who are prioritizing and putting your work and your worship first above everything else, even above good things. God, I pray that you would help us because I'm afraid that we're too often, and myself included, are like, are the opposite of that hymn we sang. We're we're not turning our eyes to Jesus. We're looking at the bright things of the world. And Jesus, in turn, is growing strangely dim. Oh God, forgive us for that sin. We're all guilty of it here. God, make us like Moses, who despised, despised the wealth and the treasures of Egypt in order to be mistreated with God's people because he had his eyes set on a greater country, on a greater kingdom. Oh God, there's no way we can persevere. There's no way we can despise the things of this world if our eyes aren't on something greater. So God, I pray, Lord, that you'd fix our eyes on the things of heaven, even this morning before we leave here. But more, Lord, as we, as we do leave here, as we get home and the things of earth begin to shout out for our attention again. God, help us to be people who consider our ways, to be thinkers. It doesn't mean, I don't believe this text means that we have to go out and and sell our house and live in a shack. And I don't believe that at all. Matter of fact, I believe that God will give us the things we need if we put him first. 
But Father, I do believe, Lord, that we way too often love this world instead of you. And your word says, friendship with the world is enmity toward you. So God, we, if we're truly redeemed people, we do not want to act like your enemies. So help us not to act like the enemy camp. Instead, help us to understand what it is we've been redeemed from and what it is we've been redeemed to. Help us to see that unshakable kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.